Hi, everyone, and welcome to MetaStation. I'm Erin. I am an English professor in Mississippi. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. And today we are discussing episode 312, which was entitled Demons. Woo! Uh, all right, so let's get started. Let's dive in. I will say just right off the bat, the thing I was the most excited about in the whole pool of storyline was that it ended up that they were not going to a gross, creepy Stockholm syndrome place with Murphy and Antari. Like Antari yeah. is still the enemy. Murphy and Antari are not like in love. In hindsight, I think the tonal issues that we discussed aside, they were treating that scene like Antari violating Murphy's consent. He is trapped. He acknowledges that he is trapped. I was concerned that it was going to go to the place where you're afraid it was going to go to. And I was just really relieved that from the very initial, you know, setup of that, that it clearly wasn't. Like, Antari still was still the bad guy. I agree. And I think I'm still a little bit... Okay, was that really necessary, like, that little bit of the plot? Especially since it basically went nowhere other than just, like, Amori showing up and it being, like four seconds of maybe it was going to be a love triangle kind of thing. In hindsight of how we see the story going, like the information that you need to get about how he feels about Antari and how Antari treats him, you could get all that from him just walking along behind Antari in Chain's yeah. marketplace. Like, I don't understand why it had to be sexual. And I do have to say, I feel like Knowing what we know now about the fact that Imori was shipped, that Imori was playing him the whole time, I feel a little weird about the fact that Murphy has had two sexual encounters and they've both been with women who are using him. Yeah, and, and especially because, like, Imori, too, I mean, if you think about Imori as a person versus chipped Imori, I mean, like, there's also a sort of, like, a little bit of a kind of squicky consent issue there. Yeah. You know? like, she is not her own person. Right. It's not really Emory deciding to sleep with John because she loves him. You know, it's like Ali Emory right. manipulating him. It's uncomfortable on, on Murphy's side because, like you said, now he's gotten two sex scenes and they're both essentially manipulative. And then also, like in this case, both people on both sides are yeah. being manipulated. Yeah. We don't know how Emory got chipped, but I, I think the implication is that they like they found her on the road, you know, so there's some question about how consensually she took the chip, you know, it's just like, it's all a little bit like, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and even if she took the chip consensually, she as a grounder would still have no way to understand what it actually does. Jaha will tell you absolutely anything to get you to take one of those things. Jaha's new superpower is to look at a person and be able to figure out what it is that they want most and then like figure out how to tell them that the chip will give them that. You know what I mean? He and Amori together are kind of like the absolute nightmare pairing, you know, because they're mm -hmm. both just all about power, just yeah. like however you can seize power. The thought of what Polis is going to be like with Ali as the commander with Antari under her power and Jaha. Ah. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's horrifying. So now that they've got Antari under their sway, the number of different terrifying tactics they have available to manipulate the grounders into taking the chips is just, it's just really yeah, upsetting. Exactly. So and, and especially yeah. because we saw the way that we saw Antari being presented in this episode as Hedda and a lot of it is just sort of confirming that the command is just like, you know, it's a monarchy, right? Like, right. you know, she's walking through the marketplace and people bow to her and they offer things to her, you know, and, and she's sitting in her throne room holding an audience and mm -hmm. making decisions, which were, I mean, I think there's a line like the, you know, the head's decision is final or whatever. 
So she is sort of confirms like the, the commander is like an absolute monarch, essentially, is how this seems to be working. So now Allie has access to someone, she controls someone who has the ability to order her subjects to line up and take the chip and they'll just do it, you know? Like, they don't even have to get anybody elected or, like, convince anybody like they did in Arcadia to let Jaha hang around on the fringes, you know what I mean? Like, they just have that direct line. So that's really scary. Because they had to be a little bit manipulative and strategic with the Sky People who have a different relationship to just sort of being told, like, you know, eat this blue weird shaped thing and don't ask questions. Right. <laughs> Raven's like, fuck right. you, you know. Everyone's breath stinks. Take your breath in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the interesting glimpse that we keep getting into Ali's, I don't know if psychology is the right word because she's an AI, but Ali's thought processes. Each episode has given us new information about the tactics that Allie uses to manipulate people. Like when we saw Raven under Allie's control and got a really, really interesting glimpse at sort of the way Allie processes information. Watching Allie and Raven riffing back and forth on what fry means and, you know, and the way that Allie can sort of pull things from her own memory stores and tap into the thought processes of the person and whose brain she's in. So, you know, so we just keep getting this sort of richer and fuller and much more terrifying picture of the way that Allie works with the people that she has completely under her control. Because they made it pretty explicit with Raven. Like, there was a difference initially in the level of control that Allie had over people. And with Raven, what we saw was that Raven had to be sort of forced into allowing Allie full access And the thing that isn't totally clear is whether everyone else has done that. Was it only Raven that was holding out? Well, no. I mean, I think what happened was the change was when Jaha convinced Allie that she had to revoke free will. So I think the idea is that Allie had some sort of standard where she she had to have consent to have full access or full control. And Jaha talked her into disregarding that and taking control by force. When Jaha convinced her to cross that line, then she just takes control of everyone. Mm -hmm. And Raven's is the only mind that is strong enough to resist that, even somewhat. That's what Um, I was wondering, because because Raven had to submit. Uh, Like, they had to break her down and she had to say, like, yes, I submit. You can, you know, you can take over. Yeah, so I think that's because Raven is special. I do, I wonder about Jaha. Because he still seems to have have a dialogue with Allie in a way that other people who are in Allie don't, you know, like the way that, in a way that like Abby, what little we saw of Abby after she was chipped did not seem to. And so I do wonder, I mean, I think it raises some questions about what exactly the relationship between Allie and the minds inside of Allie is. And also like, to me, it raises the question of, is Allie changed? According to the minds that she has uploaded and, and or the most dominant mind in her. Because Allie, when, when she was with Raven, when Raven was the mind that she was the most kind of in dialogue with, seems like somewhat kind of qualitatively different from the Allie with Jaha. And so I wonder if Allie herself, like the program isn't sort of shaped by the data that she has in her. And the data is is personalities as well as knowledge, right? Right. So I sort of wonder if what we're seeing, you know, like Allie gets sort of more and more evil because she's sort of like adapting to and shaped by 
a person like Jaha, who is this sort of true believer, interested in power over consent. And it's just going to get worse now that, you know, she's got Antari. So I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know if they'll ever actually address that, but I really wonder, especially since we know that Ali 2 is built expressly to sort of merge with people instead of taking them over. So if that was the goal with Ali 1, then maybe there's like some sort of cruder version of that. I don't know. I think that that makes a lot of sense. We were told pretty early on when it was just Jaha in the City of Light with her and when they're first initially recruit Raven. And he mentions to her, and this is something that has, the science of this has not yet been made clear. I'm assuming that at some point it will. <laughs> but the idea that yeah. more <laughs> minds in the City of Light makes Ali stronger. Yeah. So that, I think, ties in really neatly and tidily into what we talked about last week about the idea that Like Jaha having decided getting everyone in the City of Light is the ultimate goal in a way that overrides the fact that initially that was a tool to achieve Ali's ultimate goal, which was to make people happy. Jaha has sort of reversed, you know, which one of those is actually sort of the end target and has decided that just filling up the City of Light is worth killing and murdering and, you know, whatever else for. So what I'm wondering is, what is the goal for him of making Ali stronger? You know, what is Jaha's endgame? Is it that once the City of Light is full of people, he will be the ruler over those people? Is it a sort of religious devotion kind of thing where he's genuinely somehow convinced himself that the ultimate best thing for humanity is that everyone live in the city of light and that we sort of reject the corporeal world as much as possible. Is it that once the city of light is full enough that Allie has sort of achieved maximum super strength, that then another thing will happen. I just, I wonder how Jaha thinks this ends. That just seems to me like he's just sort of riding on this massive Messiah complex. Yeah, for sure. he, he, He sort of has this belief that he is sort of taken as being, you know, like the best, the ideal thing, but in a way that makes him kind of like the Messiah that will bring everyone to the truth. Right. And I think it does have to do with like some version of, of power and, and ruling, maybe not like directly. Like, I don't know if he pictures himself as the king, but I can sort of imagine him picturing himself like, like the statue of Jesus in Rio de Janeiro, you know, like standing over the, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Light with his arms outstretched, you know, like, yeah. ah, like. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't know if he has an end game beyond that or if he's supposed to, you know, I, I, I get the feeling that maybe that's it. I, you know what? And the other part of it that, that I wonder about too is how much it has changed things, changed Ali, maybe that Jaha was basically like in that mansion alone with her for three months. Yeah. It was like him and Allie merged into one mind. So by the time Murphy shows up, Jaha is already sort of like symbiotically, he's like totally in Allie, slipping in, out of, in and out of the city of light. So I wonder how much those three months, how, in what ways that changed Jaha and changed Allie. You yeah. Know? So that like Jaha's became the human mind that is kind of like the most influential over her yeah. in terms of the way that she processes it. You know, now that you're saying that, and I'm I'm thinking to myself, it is interesting that Jaha has not at any point been forced to submit like Ali sort of seems to recognize him in some way as her master or her partner or something, because they disagree from time to time. He gives her orders and he uses her as a tool in in a way that we don't see, obviously, her interacting with 
any other people, even with Raven, who she clearly has an enormous amount of respect for Raven's mind. But everyone yeah, else but yeah. Jaha has become extra bodies in the city of light. Right, Tools yeah, like, to like data banks and bodies yeah. to do things in the real world, but they have no influence in the way that he does. I mean, he can negotiate with her, you know, yeah. it, it's sort of like fascinating to me that it is possible for human to persuade this AI, you know, like he persuades her to a suspend free will. He convinces her, which yeah. is just like fascinating to me. And no one else seems to be able to do that except Raven, which does make me wonder, you know, if part of the end game isn't going to be maybe between Raven and Jaha as kind of like the two main sort of human influences on Ali. I, I don't know, maybe not like yeah. head to head. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it's just like Raven's genius mind figuring out how to take Ali apart. It would be interesting, right? Because they are the two special ones. I really, really liked the new direction that they're taking Raven with Allie out of her head, but with all of Allie's knowledge still in her mind. Yeah. And she's got this like enhanced brain super Raven. What I love about that, it shapes her arc away from being about her disability and is a way to sort of reinforce the fact that who she is is her mind and how she thinks and how brilliant she is and sort of really pushing that back to the fore in a way that I think is really empowering. Her leg does not limit her from being brilliant. But what I also like about that is, again, like these little new sort of snippets of how the alley thing works. Anyone who has the alley chip in them and then has the chip removed has all of that knowledge, you know, like that she can say like up until yesterday, Emerson wasn't chipped because she knows everybody who was. So it's exciting to sort to think about the possibilities for what role Raven could play because of all of the things that she knows and that she's one of the few people who doesn't just have that information, but understands it and understands what to do with it. Claire drops that line, which I think is like, so like, what other things do you know that you never learned? Yeah. Uh, which is like, like so huge. It's just kind of like, huh, what do I know? And I'm like, oh man, that's like, that. you know, like they drop that for a reason. Like, mm-hmm. like Raven's going to be like digging this stuff out of her head. And it's yeah. so cool. I love getting to see her mind at work. And every time we get a new little glimpse into what happens inside the brain of somebody who has or has had Allie in there. I just find it sort of, it's really terrifying, but it's also endlessly (laughs) fascinating to me. It all feels like it has a really nice, solid, internally consistent logic, but it's also full of surprises. Those are not two traits that have necessarily appeared hand in hand in all of this season's storylines. So I like that everything that happens with Allie and how Allie works and what happens to you after Allie has been in your brain and is then out of your brain all feels... Like the rules of that AI science feel really clear and comprehensive and it continues to play by the same set of rules, which is tricky about science fiction. You can't wave a magic wand. We have to understand how the pieces fit together and it has to feel realistic and believable. And they've really been doing that while also filling it with all kinds of twists and turns and little surprises, like revealing that Raven doesn't just retain her own knowledge and memories and things that she learned from Allie. She knows things that other people learn from Allie. You know, I think it's really interesting too, now that I'm thinking about it, because we know that the flame enhances the human. It's not, it's not an AI, it's enhancement, right? right? So whatever you are, it makes that more intense. And it's interesting because of, for the people who aren't totally taken over by Allie, that seems to be somewhat true of Ali as well. You know, like Jaha is still Jaha. He's just like 
way more intensely Jaha. And like Raven was still Raven. She was just like way more effective. Raven turned up. And then Emery, interestingly too, like when we, you know, and I was like, we were both, as we talked about, we were both totally like, what with the Emery being chipped thing like blown away that was oh my god I think part of like why that worked or or why we didn't notice is because Emery was was still Emery you know like she was Mm. still tricky and a grifter and and like playing that con and all that kind of stuff yeah you could tell she was she wasn't she hadn't been totally taken over like Allie was not directing her right like Emery was doing what Emery would do but she was doing it for Allie and kind of like enhanced by Allie. So I, you know, I don't know if maybe, I don't know if that'll ever be addressed, but it does seem to be a, something like something that Allie one does on a different level, maybe two, but then also with the potential to take you over and sort of obliterate you. One of the really, I think, important pieces of information that we learned in this episode Like when they're talking about how Lexa didn't know that she had an AI in her brain because the program has decayed. So the relationship that the commanders have with the previous commanders doesn't feel like having an AI in your brain. You know, it it feels like a conversation. It has sort of this spiritual component. The commanders passing their wisdom on to you. Like the, the mythology of the way that the grounders talk about the relationship between the present commander and the past commanders, you get a really different sense of, of how they yeah. communicate in a way that's so different from Allie. The really great clear example of that is when Raven is possessed and she's saying unspeakably awful things to all of her friends. And it's like the directive from Allie was clearly, you need to break them for information. Like get them yeah. mad, get a reaction, get them to give something away. And Raven used things that Raven knew that she had observed, things that she saw or things that she had heard other people say or things that she could sense because she knows these people really well are the fears that they had. And so it's it's 100% Raven because it isn't Allie who knows that Jasper's point of greatest vulnerability is his feeling of his own uselessness. It's Raven who sees that and has observed that. So the directive from Allie is break Jasper. And Raven uses the things that she knows to do that, which is so much more awful than the manipulation coming just straight from Allie. It's not Allie holding a gun to Jasper's head. It's Allie violating both of those people by, you know, like violating both Raven and Jasper by sort of dredging these things out into the light that real friends think but don't say. Raven has observed these really personal things about all these people that she would never say out loud to them. What you see there... In that moment, and possibly also with Emery and with Jaha, but especially in that Raven moment, it's Raven, but like stripped of all compassion that isn't completely sort of like tactical. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's like she's able to understand how people will react emotionally to what she says, but in that kind of like clinical sense, you know what you could say to your friend to really cut them, but you wouldn't because you would feel the pain that they would feel. So if you strip away that concern for the pain or the ability to kind of like appreciate the emotional component of that, that seems to be what is happening with Raven in there. And, and then you, so I wonder if that's true of like Emery too, you know, who's a grifter, right? You know, mm-hmm. and she's, she will like manipulate anybody to get anything, but she wouldn't do that to John until now, you know, and like she, so she's able to sort of like use those skills and aptitudes and proclivities or whatever and knowledge 
but like totally divorced from any concern for like relationships with people or how it would hurt people. What I find the most fascinating about that and also is a pretty big useful clue to kind of the direction that this whole story is taking is how perfectly that dovetails into the sort of overarching love being the glitch in the matrix thing because it's human personal relationships that are the factor that Allie never takes into account. It's the fact that humans make counterintuitive choices on behalf of the people that they care about that are not the kinds of things that you can systemically predict using mathematical data models, the way Allie is sort of gaming out different scenarios of people's potential behavior. Yeah. And she understands enough about human thinking to be able to predict particular reactions. She knows how to make Raven say something that will upset Jasper, but she didn't predict Raven wanting to remember Finn. She can't understand that the things that make people behave in strange or puzzling ways or ways that don't fit into her plan, it's because it's the people that we care about. It's like this is really the two kind of broad strokes themes of the season I think intersecting in a big way that's just going to become bigger and bigger, which is one, this consent and loss of free will, which is really made explicit in the City of Light storyline, but has also been woven through a lot of other things. And then also that bumping up against people making choices on behalf of the people that they love or motivated by protecting or defending or trying to save people that they care about. And where those two lines cross really feels like what we're going to see being really key to the way that Allie one gets taken down is that there are aspects of human behavior that she can't predict because relationships aren't a thing that she can understand. She can't understand anyone, you know, choosing something painful because it's attached to a relationship that's meaningful to them or because love requires pain and suffering. Right. You know? Like she cannot compute that because, you know, like, like all the data shows that human behavior is built around avoiding pain. Like this is what she thinks. So she thinks anything painful must be something to avoid. She can't understand the idea that love is worth pain, you know, like that just would be, that would, that would break the matrix. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like we're getting a really clear, interesting sense of what's happening next in Polis and where those storylines are going to sort of converge and how Mm -hmm. Allie's weaknesses are being revealed one by one. We know that Raven and Monty have, you know, figured out or are going to figure out, you know, a way to hack into the Arcadia mainframe to download Alley 1. And if they can find a host for Alley 2, the science of it, we've been told, okay, this is, you know, we think this is how we're going to destroy her. But I also think that it's going to end up, now that my my Luna and Emery are the same person theory has been pretty much kaput, I sort of suspect that the twist is that we're never going to meet Luna. Really? Yeah. I think yeah. that I think that Luna is dead already. Yeah. Partly for practical reasons, which is that no Luna guest stars have been announced. And there hasn't been any other significant guest stars this season that we didn't know about in advance. I was totally convinced when you start noticing that Amori is behaving a little weirdly. Yeah. I was like, oh, like, okay. oh, she's Luna. She's like, I totally yeah. was convinced that I was yeah. like, oh, okay. This is all that sort of fan speculation about our Amori and Luna, the same person was totally right because she's so clearly 
up to something when she's yeah. walking around the flame keeper's sacred chamber and she's like, you know, and she says Becca in that kind of reverent tone. Yeah. And she's really captivated by the seek higher things banner and the infinity sign. And she's asking all these questions. So to me, I thought like, okay, so what this means is she's a nightblood. And so she knows about these things like from Titus, you know, from Nightblood School, like she knows about them in their abstract mythical component. And all of a sudden, Murphy has all of this concrete knowledge about what they really are, and that she's fascinated by sort of knowing more about that. I was like, okay, so this is like, I'm taking this scene of Amori in, in the Flamekeeper's Chamber as like solid confirmation that she's totally Luna because she's acting so weird. And then when they came out and she was chipped, my first thought was, okay, so then she's obviously not fucking Luna. When you watch it again and you know that she's been chipped and the whole scene is just placed completely oh, differently. Totally different. It's totally so different. sinister. Yeah. So my new revised theory, I'm guessing that somehow, and I don't quite know from whom this information would come. Wait, no, Antari knows about Luna, right? Antari knows that Clark left with the flame and is probably, if she doesn't know about Luna specifically... Murphy knows. So I would not be surprised... That's right. ...if we get them torturing Murphy again. Yeah. Or or trying to get that information out of Murphy. And, I mean, he might give it up. So, like, yeah. that would be the way for them to find out about Luna. So my guess is that something happens and, yeah, and Murphy is the most obvious way, is that somehow... The alley hive mind gets hold of the information that there is another Nightblood and A, that that's probably where Clark and everybody else is going. And so if they want to, you know, find and intercept them, that's where to go look. And that also getting rid of the other Nightblood means that they now, as long as they hold on to Antari, have control of all of Grounder civilization. And so I think what happens is that when the Adventure Squad rolls up to the boat people, everyone is either like already gone or already dead. Because the end game to me seems like it has to be Clark having to take both AIs. Like Clark having to yeah. manufacture Nightblood Serum using Becca's notebook and inject herself with it so she can take the flame and also then taking one of the alley one chips and that the final like climactic finale AI war is in her head, which means that there can't be a Luna. They find her too late and she's already dead or she won't come or they do find her and they bring her back and she gets killed on the way. Like it doesn't feel appropriately of high dramatic stakes if the person who has the AI flame in their head isn't Clark. Yeah, and I think, I mean, there's the, the description of, was it 314 came out, and I think it said something like, Bellamy, Clark, Jasper, Octavia hit a tragic yeah. roadblock, which I think has got to be, something happens to Luna, she's yeah. not available, she's dead, and I think probably she's dead. Yeah. And yeah, I would be, like, when I read that, my first thought was like, oh, Antari got there first, like, somehow they right, find right. out. Yeah. And she goes to, you know, get rid of her competition, essentially. I agree, I think she's probably dead. I sort of still kind of think that the tragedy is they only got there just in time. There's a track on the on the soundtrack called Luna's Sorrow. So I sort of wonder, like, we must somehow find out her backstory. Yeah. To go with that, you know, like, there must be some sorrow for Luna to have that we learn about. <laughs> and there's two Luna tracks on the soundtrack. There's one yeah. that's called Luna of the Boat People. Luna of the Boat People is, like, really, really, like, adventure music, you know, like, big dramatic music, which uh-huh. I feel like. 
sounds to me like that's the music that might play when Antari and Ali find out about Luna, and then mm. they find that it's like the race to whatever. Yeah. And then, yeah, Luna's sorrow, I mean, we'll see, but like, it sounds to me like, you know, sort of like backstory music, or I don't know, maybe she just died music or something like that. So yeah. I agree with you. I think Luna's going to be like a big sort of like, we just find Luna and everything's okay. And then the big like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> Luna's like the MacGuffin. The idea that finding Luna will fix everything and all we have to do is find Luna and put this chip in her head and make her the commander and then all our problems will be solved. It's like, that's not this show. Yeah, Luna is the first Mount Weather plan before the Lexa betrayal. When we're all like, chugging along just fine. Yep. And then, whoop, never mind. There always has to be terrifyingly high stakes last minute improvisation or it just wouldn't be this show. So it's like, yeah, the same with like... Actually, of course, another solve their problem. There's always some like crazy improvisational thing. And so I think that what it's going to be this time is that Clark's going to have to put the flame in herself. And I sure wish that first, before she did that, she would go to Paula's and unship her mother because Abby's help <laughs> would sure be useful manufacturing yeah, nightblood serum. Is. Although it's possible that there's a different, we're going to find out through like Raven that there's a, another way to do it. Like yeah. it's possible we'll find out that like you can take the first chip and you then the second chip and the first chip does whatever the nightblood serum needs to do or something. So that's how she winds up taking both. Yeah. Or I could also see them doing something like, this would be cheesy, but I also could see it happening where, like, the flame chooses a person, and then if it chooses you, then it doesn't kill you, or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Like, it does, it does the gene therapy itself if it chooses you, or, right. or I don't know, something like that. Like, now that, that Abby is out of play in terms of figuring out the Nightblood Serum, I kind of wonder if that will just, they'll just find a different way. Like, it feels sort of weird. It feels like you would need a doctor for that. Right. Um, <laughs> so I know, like, Abby next week, that promo just did not look... I'm oh, so I'm upset. Sorry, I'm, I'm so, so sorry. upset. I, I'm no, sorry. I was out last night with some friends, and I hadn't had time to watch the episode yet. I knew I wasn't going to get to it until today, but I told my friend Sam, I was like, let me know the second the trailer comes out, because the, the CW messed up and they showed the Legends yeah, of yeah, Tomorrow yeah. trailer instead. Yeah, I heard that. So everyone was hoping that like by West Coast time, they'll have like released it at least on YouTube. And so I was like, okay, if there's any cabbie at all on the trailer, like you have to tell me, like I have to know immediately. So then like I'm re- I'm staring at my phone and I probably looked like someone had shot my dog. Like I was like, are you okay? And it can't be like a fictional character that I really love is doing something terrible to another fictional character. I was like, I'm fine. I just don't feel very well. <laughs> it's like, I was a mess. And this is the second time that I've gotten like potentially bad cabbie news in public and had to like behave like things are normal and like I have no I have no chill about Marcus Kane and it's just like oh, yeah, really it's right. so upsetting yeah. the visual of Abby torturing Kane is horrible and everything's horrible and the world is garbage and I hate everything but <laughs> <laughs> but that being said as we're sort of talking about the convergence of all of the big season themes around the way that Allie manipulates people and the things that Allie can't predict about human behavior it fits into that really perfectly because torturing Kane for information on the whereabouts of the kids because people don't like pain and it seems like a logical, sensible, straightforward reaction that you would say, I'm going to give you pain until you provide me this information isn't factoring in the fact that Kane promised Abby that he would take care of Clark and he loves those kids and he knows that the real Abby would never, ever, ever in a million years want him to put them in danger. And if anybody's got a masochistic streak that yes. approaches Bellamy Blake's, 
it's Kane. It's Kane. You know? So yeah. like, if there are t- two people that you could like put under torture and say like, I will torture you until you give up information about this person that you love or this person that you, whom somebody you love loves, the two people who would never ever break on this show would be Bellamy and Kate. Yeah, because <laughs> because deep down they're like, this feels like about what I deserve. Exactly. Sure. <laughs> They'd be like, yeah, bring it. I've been yeah. waiting for this. The comforting and it's totally fucked upness theory that I heard that I think is really interesting is sort of the idea that potentially for Kane and Abby's relationship to progress in a way where it feels like they've really dealt with their baggage is something like this, is Kane sort of voluntarily undergoing torture to protect Clark and to protect the kids, kind of the only thing that's going to make him feel like it evens the scales for the shock lashing and attempting to float Abby, you know, and Jake and all the pain that he's caused her. And working so hard in the first season to, you know, convince Abby that like the kids were dead. Yeah. So I, so I, I felt ill when I first heard about it. I felt ill when I first watched it. And I was just like, I just like go home and curl up into a little ball and like rock back and forth and like think happy catty thoughts. But I, I know I'm a human disaster, but actually, but I do feel like having watched the episode now twice and really kind of feeling like we're getting a clearer and clearer sense of what direction the story is headed, I feel like this fits perfectly. You know, like it, it really positions yeah, their does. relationship right at the convergence of where all of these plots meet in a way that feels yeah. like this is a moment that's going to be really important. They're not going to kill Kane off. That, no, no. I'm, I'm not worried about yeah, yeah. either of them yeah. in this situation. And I think you're right, like that confrontation between Abby and, and Marcus and like the conversation that will be happening with that, I think is really like for Kane, I, I, I think you're totally right that this fits right into the atonement theme that's building up through this episode, which we'll talk about in a minute, which I'm like super duper excited about. But this kind of idea that like you have all of these people who have done terrible, terrible, terrible things made terrible choices, you know, that cost a lot of lives that they believe were right, but that were actually wrong. And that one thing that's happening this season is that they are having to like to atone for that in ways that they never have, you know, like there's been a lot of regret, but not a great deal of like atonement for it. It'll be interesting but I, I, to, to see it when it happens next week, but I think you're right that that came is probably very much fitting into that. And then Abby's really interesting because I think, you know, we're talking about like the, the minds that are strong enough to sort of resist Allie a little bit or to kind of like have more agency within Allie than other minds. And I think Abby is one of them, you know, and for Abby, it's maybe not intellect per se, the way that it is for Raven, because Raven is that like preeminent mind. And it's not Jaha's sort of special relationship with Allie, but it's because Abby has the heart. I feel like there's a part of Abby that Allie will never, ever, ever be able to fully subsume because it is so driven by those connections that are so incomprehensible to Allie. Yes. You know, if there is anyone who is in Allie, even in Allie and her like free will has been revoked state, who will still have some germ of that love that is so important that is accessible, it's going to be Abby and it's going to be like pinged. When Kane talks about Clark. Yes. You know, like, and Jason has said that Abby and Clark is one of the relationships that's most important to him. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll see how it works out. But I could definitely, definitely see one of those little moments, those, those key moments being like, if Marcus just keeps like pushing and pushing her on Clark, you know, like yeah. I could see that breaking the hold a little bit, just enough, you know, like even mm-hmm. if, even if he doesn't save Abby, like even if Abby winds up having to be gotten out by Clark in the end. 
I could see that breaking the hold a little bit and changing things in a way that's going to drive things towards resolution. I think so too. And I, I think that there's a lot of potential for the relationship between Clark and Abby to be really important in the resolution of this storyline in a way yeah. that it was sort of obliquely last season because Abby was like among the many, many Matt Weather hostages. And it was certainly Abby going on the operating table that sort of flipped the switch for Clark. But it was also Abby as one of like all her people were down there. Abby was like thematic closure last season, right, not right. less so plot closure. And I can see her being more both thematic and plot closure here. Well, and I think especially like, like we talked about a little bit last week where I feel like the Hannah and Monty confrontation, I feel more and more like that is some degree of foreshadowing a similarly structured confrontation between Clark and Abby with a very different outcome. Monty was never going to be able to get through to Hannah. And Hannah's that, weak-minded. I'm sorry. Hannah's weak-minded. Well, and, and <laughs> I, no, she was because we saw, because all the way along we saw her, uh, before she even had a chip, she had already betrayed Monty. She'd already chosen right. somebody else. She she'd chosen whatever. Pike. She capitulated to Pike every time. Every she time. She like bought, uh, bought that line. Like, yeah, like she yeah. doesn't, she never had the resources. Yeah. As much as she might have loved Monty, and I'm sure she did love Monty, but she did not have the wherewithal to stand up against an opposing force and defend her son. And the one moment that she did, when she sort of weakly covered for... Like, that was the false alarm, they're not at the gate. And sort of a little bit obfuscated the fact that Monty had been the one that provided that misinformation, but she still turned around and sold him out to Pike anyway, you know. So I think that Hannah just completely being instantly and immediately under Allie's sway with no resistance and, and no trace of the mom that she used to be, and Monty then being really shattered in ways that are going to have some long-term consequences by his inability to save her, to me, yeah. it feels like what that setting up is going to be a reversal where at some point Clark and Abby are going to come face to face. And the difference, of course, is that Clark does know how to save somebody who's been chipped. And yeah. also that Abby has a degree of strength of character and, and is so driven, like everything that she does is driven by her love of Clark and wanting to yeah. keep Clark safe, that it feels like the fact that it's Abby... I think means that the relationship between the two of them and their love for each other. And also the fact that, you know, like we could see in the promotional pictures for next week, Abby still hasn't taken off Jake's ring. So I yeah. think that Clark's memories of her dad, like, is there some moment between Abby and Clark about the wedding ring around her neck? I don't know. But then in some way, I, which I think is, would be really exciting to have the relationship between Clark and Abby become part of what pulls Abby out of the city of light because we saw it happen with Raven and Finn. It is possible to some degree for some people, no matter how much they're under Allie's sway to resist. Raven doesn't say like, who's Finn? She says Finn was real. Like Finn wasn't erased from her memory it was just like a dream or a thing that she wasn't sure whether it like really existed. But that was because Finn was dead. And so with Clark standing right there in front of Abby, people don't forget the people that they love who are still alive. So I'm <laughs> terrified that I think it's going to be awful and traumatizing to watch. And I'm going to have to like 
have a teddy bear and a fuzzy sweater and like (laughs) emergency chocolate when I watch it. But I do feel like it's shaping up to say some really interesting things about the relationship between Ally 1 and Ally 2 and their different understandings of how human beings behave, you know, because Ally 2, like the flame, I think that the love is weakness refrain that we hear from Titus seems to be, I mean, it's hard to know how much of that is Titus and Lexa, like their specific relationship, and how much of that is Titus speaking in some way on behalf of the things that all the commanders believe in are taught? Like, is any of that from Becca? So I wasn't sure if we were ever meant to believe that that was hardwired into the commander's flame programming. But like, Lexa did feel love, like the AI has felt and experienced it. There's just a very different understanding of that as a motivating factor between both of those AIs that I think is going to end up being a big part of when the final clash happens, kind of how that all plays yeah, out. So. Yeah. Just to talk about Monty for another minute before yeah. we get to the rest of the Arcadia plot. But I think, so Monty was really interesting to me this, this episode because it looks like what I thought maybe was part of what was going to happen from last week, that he's tempted by the City of Light. Because he believes his mom is still there. Like he's latched on to this idea that his mom is still alive and she's in this place and he theoretically could still get to her, which is fascinating. Like we got that that, that shot at the end of the episode where he doesn't hug Jasper, Mm -hmm. you know, and he kind of turns away from the group. And I think that's definitely because he's still suffering from this group. But I think it's also because like, I think it maybe it's meant to suggest that he's staying behind with Raven because he wants to help hack into the city of light because he wants in there and he's mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to get in there without necessarily being chipped. So we got a few times when we saw people staring at chips in this episode. We saw Monty staring at the chip at the beginning in the Rover when he's talking about, you know, his mom is still alive in there. And we got Antari staring at the chip before she decided to take it when Jaha was telling her that, that this was the key to all her power, you know, to all the power she wanted, to all the knowledge, to everything. And he was sort of like seducing her into it. And we also saw Clark gazing at the flame several times. Mm-hmm. And one time was definitely like, I think after her conversation with Bellamy, one time was her getting the idea of how to, how to weaponize it. But we also got that shot at the end when she's, you know, they're standing by the rover and they're all getting ready to go. And she's standing there. She's holding it in her hand. Like when we cut to that scene, the first thing we cut to is, is Clark looking at the flame sort of sadly, mournfully, and then putting it back in the box and then looking at Bellamy. And I think maybe what's going on with Clark and Monty is that there's another sort of little parallel thing being developed here. Like there, we have a whole bunch of different misdirected forms of grief happening in this episode in particular, but in the season in general. And one of those forms of grief is sort of directed outwards in the form of violence and revenge. And we see that symbolized in Emerson, we can talk about that in a minute, but like blood must have blood is sort of like the, that is the thing that sums up that idea that like that grief channeled into rage and more death, right? So that's like one version of misdirected grief. And then another version of misdirected grief, I think, is Octavio. So we can talk about that. But the other one I think that's being developed is grief that is sort of misguided because you have people, Monty and Clark, who cannot let go of the dead because they are attached to this idea that they are alive somewhere. And I think it's really interesting that we're getting someone else who's going to be tempted into into that sort of like fantasy, the idea that they're not really dead. If I could just figure out a way to get to where they are, you know, I could have them back again, right? 
Because like our prediction before this season even started was that the finale was going to involve Clark having to decide between a kind of like virtual reality happiness with Lexa and the painful reality of facing her life and herself and, and the fact that Lexa was going to be dead. And I think that's probably still going to be true. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that we're getting that we're, it's not just going to be Clark, it's going to be Monty too. And what we're getting is another sort of like a very sympathetically portrayed, like we understand why, why it's so important for Monty to believe that his mom is in there, you know, because he killed her. Like, I think like this is what's keeping him together is the idea that she's alive somewhere and he can get to her and he can sort of make up for it. And Clark, to some extent, like we know that she's really really like attached to this idea that Lex is still in there. And I think that is something that's going to have to be addressed and demystified. You know, like I think in the city of light, we're going to see there's some spoilers about Lex's farewell to Clark, basically saying something like you need to go live now. Like you need to go, like I have to go do this and you have to go do that essentially. Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe that's going to be Monty's arc as well somehow and wrapped up with jasper i don't know how you know like we still don't know how jasper's gonna wind up in the city of light but like i think it's gonna be something about like like monty needing to learn that that's illusory that his mom isn't really there he can't get her back that holding on to that idea is preventing him from grieving you know from facing what's happening and grieving and letting her go and grieving means letting go right and like that's the part that they can't do I totally agree with you. And I feel like what I'm interested in in that is the idea that potentially that that could be a bridge back towards some kind of a reconciliation or, or the rebuilding of relationship between Jasper and Monty. I, yeah. I, I really like the idea Jasper of having to realize through helping Monty that he has to let Maya go too, you know? Yeah. And that Jasper, um, maybe this is a good transition really into sort of diving into the Arcadia storyline, but yeah. I, what I'm really loving about Jasper's arc this season, every episode I feel like I just, I like him more and more is that his refusal to hide from the pain that he's feeling, the way that he wears his grief on his sleeve and kind of gives no fucks how anyone judges him about it, which has been sort of his defining thread throughout yeah. the whole season, has put him in this really unique position to be a person multiple times who can empathetically see and respond to that in somebody else. Yeah. It's him that cracks through when Raven is chipped and that he's the one who sort of helps her remember Finn, you know, and then jumps onto the Raven train to help free her when they both realize what the chip is doing and that she doesn't want it anymore. He's kind of trying to help her get Finn back. And then in this episode, he's repeating back to Octavia the words that she said to him when they were at Mount Weather in episode three. And he's sitting there in front of the painting that Maya loved. And Octavia just comes and sits down next to him and lets him cry and and tells him that it'll get better. And he doesn't quite believe her in that moment. But it's the true kind friend thing to say. And he sort of gives that back to her in this episode. And because she's Octavia, you know, she's unwilling to let him see her being vulnerable, which he gets and, you know, goes and sets up in the hallway. Like he gives her that space. But I just really like seeing him, you know, for for the same reason that I like Raven's enhanced cybernetic AI brain being sort of the culmination of her arc that I like Jasper's empathy and compassion and ability to respond to other people's grief for their loved ones being his, because it doesn't, yeah. It doesn't minimize the thing that happened to them. It's not like you're doing a good, helpful thing for the team despite having a disability or despite having PTSD. It's like the thing that happened to you is what makes this possible. Yeah, exactly. Um, and part of that is that 
you know, Maya has remained real for him and her death has remained real for him in a way that maybe some of the other like traumas and deaths that the other characters are processing haven't. Like he's really allowed himself to feel the reality of both his love for her and its loss in a way that other characters have sort of resisted or, or, or pushed away either the love or the loss, you know? Yeah. Like everyone's been running except for Jasper who just sort of sat right down in the middle of it. And he was like, this is where I'm at right now. And I really feel like in some ways that's another sort of microcosm for the whole season. And this sort of idea that like, Everyone's been in varying different degrees hiding from their pain and in some kind of illusory reality. And it looks different for everyone. So I think for Octavia, it's her anger. It's focusing this anger towards Bellamy, anger towards sort of the world in general, because she has bought into this, you know, warriors don't mourn the dead until the battle is over thing. And so she's not allowing herself to feel anything for Lincoln. And, and even at the end of this episode, she has moments, but then yeah. she runs away from the funeral pyre. Yeah. You know, like she still sort of tamps it down. Her reaction to Jasper, you know, sort of rejecting the uh, comfort that he offered her. Like we have all these signals, I think, to show that, that Octavia's is another form of, yeah, like she's, she's fighting it. Yeah. Yeah. She's fighting it. She's still resistant. And, you know, I mean, and Clark literally like running away to Polis to, to yeah, not have yeah. to face her people after yeah. Mount Weather. You know, everyone has been in, in varying different, very human and relatable ways, finding things that get in between themselves and the pain that they've experienced so that they don't have to feel it or don't have to feel it right now or can feel something else instead. And I think that Jasper is really the only person, you know, he, we see him being tempted by the chip and we don't know what would have happened if Abby hadn't come along and like physically taken it out of his hand. But as soon as he realizes that painlessness means forgetting, he doesn't want it. He rejects the chip. I'm still sort of low-key convinced that he's going to be dead by the end of this season. But now I'm really rooting against that instead of being like, okay, yeah, suggestion on the death list. Now I'm like, I really don't want him to. Because I love how he sort of is becoming, in some ways, the embodiment of this overarching theme about that it's always better and healthier and in the long run makes you stronger to look right at the bad thing instead of hiding from the thing. And he's the only person who's been doing that consistently, you know, and what at the beginning of this season was sort of a trait that was driving everybody else crazy. Now that we're a couple episodes away from the end, the lines have shifted to a degree where it's clear that he's doing it right. He's actually grieving in the healthy way because he's facing the thing and that everybody else, I think he needs to sort of, you know, take a page out of Jasper's book and start really looking at these things honestly, which is why I, I still think, and I've said this before, I, I still feel like the emotional culmination of the end of the finale, I just am convinced is going to have to be Clark walking back through the Arcadia gates. Like they did this time too, but like in a sort of like symbolic return to her people kind of way to have that sort of homecoming, not just to the place, but to those people. I really like Jasper in this episode. I feel like he's just we got some really lovely reaction shots of him watching other people, you know, like seeing the look on Monty's face when Monty is staring at the chip and wondering if his mom is still alive in there. And Raven says, well, that kind of depends on what you mean by alive. And then it cuts to Jasper. We can tell that Jasper can read Monty's pain, you know, and he doesn't reach out and he doesn't say anything, but we like, we see that he gets it. And so I feel like we're, we're getting a lot of Jasper being the person who can read everybody else's emotions 
because of what he himself has been through in a way that I think is really lovely and that I hope we get more of it. I hope he doesn't die. I still sort of suspect that he will maybe in the finale. We know he's at least in 314. I'm really interested in, in where he's going and I'm hopeful that there is some kind of resolution between him and, and Monty. I hope so too. I, I think they're building up to that. These like character pairings that are now emerging and like who has stuff to work out with whom. Yeah. I think Monty and Jasper are definitely that pair. You yeah. know, like even in this episode which was not centered on them at all, it's like, you know, at the end, there were a couple of shots that definitely were like framed around them in a way that suggested that those two are kind of the unit. They're sitting next to each other in the rover, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I think, and uh, and like Jasper reacting to Monty when he's talking about the chip. And so there's all these signals that they're kind of like intertwined. Yeah. You know, one way or another, I do think that Jasper is going to be the one who sort of directly addresses and sort of helps turn Monty around, yeah. you know, even if, if other people wind up doing that for other characters. But I think that's definitely going to be Jasper. So the other big, like, theme of this episode, I think, this is an episode, I think the Arcadia plot, I think, in a lot of ways, really was was more an allegory than anything else. Like, it functioned like an allegory. Yeah. Which makes sense, because in a lot of ways, horror functions as an allegory. The monster in a horror film is a kind of allegorical figure symbolizing some kind of particular social fear or set of fears. So the fact that this was a kind of a horror story worked really well. And we got it right off the bat with like, it literally opens with, the ghost story, a, yeah. with a campfire ghost story. And the way that it hit so many of these sort of expected horror slasher film kind of tropes, it was like, this is a huge tonal difference for this show. Like it is doing a completely different thing in this storyline. And so what is it doing and why is it doing that thing? And I think yeah. you're right. I think that it is allegorical and that, the story that Miller tells at the beginning, it's so important that that's where we begin. Like, as soon as he started telling the story, I was like, you got to pay attention to the details because this is a frame story that is setting you up to understand the rest of the story. And so everything else that happens in the episode, I think, like the key to it is Miller's ghost story. And so what we get is a story, you know, we get this, what was it, Hidalgo? Fidalgo? What is it? I don't Let's just say Fidalgo. I can't remember his name, but I, mean, I think it was, I think it was Fidalgo. Yeah. And like you said, it was like so weird to hear them mention like nationalities, Brazilian guy. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> like Brazil, like who knew they even knew about Brazil? It's 97 years. You forget all about Brazil. Um, There's a Brazilian station, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. There is. There yeah. is sort of like, the like anyway, well, so, one of the six countries uh, that he knows. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, okay, so there's this guy. And that that first generation is haunted by the deaths on the ground. So we get a story of a man, first generation on the ark, and he's haunted by the memory of his family burning to death from radiation. Okay, so like, that's really important, right? Because that's the same way that the people in Mount Weather died. So he's haunted by the memories or the ghosts of his lost loved ones who demand from him vengeance. Blood must have blood. They died, so now they want other people to die. And so the horror story is this man who's sort of like unable to let go of the dead, unable to let go of the suffering and pain they went through and their and the loss of them, and whose grief sort of transmogrifies into this horrific, bloody, but misdirected vengeance, which he wreaks on whoever is around him, you know, so he's like hacking them up with a hook, and it turns him into a demon. So, I mean, like that right there in a microcosm, that is Emerson's story. Yeah. Emerson, who is haunted by the friends and family who burned to death in Mount Weather, who has been unable to let go of that pain and that hatred, and who has been transformed into a monster, into a demon because of it. 
So I think, you know, like, I know there were, there were a bunch of people who didn't like this stuff who were really upset by it because they felt like Clark was being punished for choosing mercy, seeming to be a message that when Clark chose blood must not have blood in Polis and let him go, that she must have been wrong. And I don't think that's right. That's not the story that's being told. Like, okay, so like her, her decision had consequences, but that wasn't her fault. The story is about how Emerson lost his humanity because he was overcome by the need for vengeance and how that cycle of violence produces horror and produces demons, produces monsters that then sort of like perpetuate themselves. And so the first part of the allegory is Emerson, who is the demon, who is, who is made into a demon by vengeance. And I think, you know, this kind of like theme that like they've discredited blood must have blood, right? Like, right. so this whole theme where like anytime someone is choosing that way, it's going to be wrong. Like this, the only way to end the cycle is by somebody just saying no more. So, so that's one side of it. So I think that's what Emerson represents. And, and in a lot of ways, like Emerson as a character doesn't make any sense in this episode. Like if you think too hard about like any practical stuff. Right, right. Life, How did he, he get, get there? How where did he, he get there? the grounder outfit? How long has he been hiding? Did he just wait until the Jaha zombie yeah. army where left? Where did he get the red gas? Yeah, the fog like, canisters. How, yeah. How did he carry the bodies of Harper Miller and Brian from the cave to the, like, don't think about it. Where'd he get the music box? The mountain got bombed. Don't ask these questions. You cannot ask these questions (laughs) because he's not a character. He's a symbol, you know, like he's functioning almost entirely as a symbol in this episode. So like, you kind of just got to spend all logical questions involving anything. Just accept the creepy music box. Exactly. Just accept that he is the embodiment of blood must have blood driven right. to its worst extreme. Right. So that's that's one side of the allegory. And I think the other side of the allegory we get in the rover when Raven is reading Becca's book and she's describing the first alley and Clark asks about the flame and Raven says, oh, alley 2.0, she built that to atone for what alley one did. So what we're being basically told right there is that the flame is atonement. What the flame was for Becca was atonement. It was meant to atone for that first sin of creating the thing that burned the world. So I think that operates on a sort of plot level. We know that the flame, the reason that it functions differently from Alley 1 and the reason that it can take down Alley 1 is because it was built in order to do that. But on a symbolic level, on an allegorical level, it is also the flame, and I think all flames in this episode, so both Alley 2.0 and all other flames, especially the, the funeral pyre at the end, are meant now to symbolize atonement, like true atonement for your sin. And I think it's really important to think about atonement is not the same thing as guilt. It's not the same thing as remorse. It is not self-sacrifice because self-sacrifice is, you know, when Clark tries to say to Bellamy, like, take this, I'm just going to go give myself to Emerson. I mean, in a lot of ways, self-sacrifice is another way of running away. And what Becca did, what Allie 2.0 did, like the reason I think that it's a good symbol or works as a kind of like physical embodiment of atonement is that she recognized the mistakes she made, both technical and moral. And she built something that will fix those mistakes. And it can't bring the lives back. You know, it doesn't wash her hands clean of blood. But it does address the fundamental error that she made. Mm -hmm. And it shows that she understands what it was. 
So the episode winds up being an allegory for Clark atoning for Mount Weather, which I think is why, you know, they've got that sort of like annoying, they lampshaded Bellamy never getting credit for Mount Weather last week. And then this week, everyone's just like, you know, Clark is taking full credit for Mount Weather from everybody right. and Bellamy says nothing, you know, like, yeah. like that's a little bit annoying. But I think again, you know, like it's sort of working allegorically on a level of like working us through the steps of, of Clark atoning for Mount Weather. And that means she has to face it, finally. You know, she has to face the pain she caused in the form of Emerson again. Mm-hmm. She has to face the sort of fallout from her choice in the form of Emerson. She has to face up to the fact that, you know, it's hurting her friends. Like, so she has to, like, face what she's done in a way that she's been running from. And I, and like you said, I think it's important that she did walk through those gates for the first time in this episode mm-hmm. to do that. And she's walking through these halls, you know, and she's facing all the things, all the choices that she made to save her people, which culminated in irradiating Mount Weather, but like included locking up Emerson and things like that. And so when she kills Emerson with the flame in the end, it's a kind of a nice little moment. If you're, if you're thinking about it on that kind of like symbolic allegorical level, it's a cool moment because, you know, she is killing the symbol of vengeance with the symbol of atonement. Yeah. Um, and I kind of like that, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I do too. Yeah. I love this theory. I think this is a fascinating way to look at it. The fact that Emerson's plan for her, and again, and why think too deeply about the logical, actual, practical realities yeah, of how this will play? Don't even, don't try. Yeah. It will fall apart. Exactly. And yeah. Mad, like just. Yeah. <laughs> so, so leaving the way reality works aside, the part that I found the most haunting because it felt so deeply rooted in this, you know, this sort of demonic, worse version of himself that Emerson has become, is that he's not content to just shoot everybody in the head. He wants to make yeah. her watch her friends die the way his friends died. And that moment where he shuts the airlock and they're draining out the oxygen, this episode that was beautifully directed with lots of really effective emotional reaction shots you know that we we get we get at least one or two good long looks at everybody's faces are in that airlock running out of oxygen and cutting back to clark watching them all and so i think that that's a a really literal facing of the thing that she did because she wasn't in the room when it happened she was in the control room watching on a screen and so she didn't actually see anybody die she saw a small kind of grainy camera footage of what was going on in the dining room you know and then she saw the the aftermath but she wasn't in there watching everybody die I think that for Emerson, making her actually have to watch, like, this is what it looks like when you drain the air out of somebody's lungs and they asphyxiate in front of you, feels like both a a fitting revenge from his point of view. And fittingly, Hmm. like, making that mistake of perpetuating the the pain and the trauma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, But I also feel like one thing that sort of wasn't addressed in any kind of a literal way or even emphasized that overtly in the way it was shot, but that I, I did sort of find myself thinking is that the only reason that Emerson is alive right now is because of Harper. Yeah. Is, is, is that, you know, that Emerson has Harper's bone marrow and that's why he's the last mountain man. And so the only reason that he is able to walk around free and go back to Arcadia is because of what happened to the kids in the first place. So it has this really sort of cyclical 
the torture that Emerson is visiting on all these kids, including Harper, is only possible because of the original torture visited on Harper. You know, so yeah, it's it yeah. link, linking all these things together in yeah. a way that feels, again, like you said, like that the violence is a cycle that he's part of this system that was continually perpetuating it. Right. And that, again, also really plays into this, I think, stronger and stronger stance that the show seems to be overtly taking about the fallacy of the idea of my people. Like we talked about last time, like like helping my people always involves hurting your people. And that's the clear through line of the whole Matt Weather plot. The people in Mount Weather that have any kind of qualms about hurting the kids are the ones who see the kids as human beings. And the ones that don't, like Cage and Dr. Singh and Emerson, see them as like a means to an end, which is the way they're going to get out of the mountain. And so the choice to put the people of Mount Weather above the lives of, of the hundred and kind of not care what happens to them, that's what precipitates the chain of events that leads to all of his people dying. So it's just, it's, it's interesting the way that it feels like these things all keep looping around and looping around and looping around when the choices that you're making are dictated by only what's good in the short term present moment for you and your people. And that you're not able to see from the perspective of who's on the other side of it. And it seems like the show is becoming more clear and assertive in its statement that that's a destructive way to live. And that we talked about before, like the idea that this season is going to end with a total dismantling of all of those systems. Like we're going to end up with Jaha and Ali taking out such a huge percentage of both the grounders and sky crew that I think season four is going to be the handful of whoever's left from both sides building a new society together that's much more integrated with all of those lines of demarcation that used to exist totally gone. Yeah. And I think it's also really important just in terms of like the distinctions that are being drawn in the episode between Clark and Emerson. Watching the people die in Mount Weather for Clark, even on the screens, was so hauntingly traumatic for her. Yeah. That she had to, you know, she couldn't go home. Mm-hmm. Like she couldn't walk through those gates because she couldn't look in their faces because of what she had done to get them there. Yeah. You know, even though those people were the people who were torturing her people, even though that line was drawn and she believed that she had to do it and she believed it was the right thing to do. She felt it, you know, and she felt the horror of it and she felt that it was wrong. And Emerson doesn't, yeah. you know. Emerson enjoys watching them die. You know, Emerson wants to watch them die. He wants to watch Clark watch them die. You know, like there's a, there's a satisfaction in the vengeance and in, in the pain Mm -hmm. that he, in seeing others suffer pain like he has, that I think is the other piece of it that sets him apart completely from Clark. So I think maybe that's like an important difference too. And I think maybe, you know, I don't know, but like maybe that's also a play in us being told very carefully that during the Granite Massacre, Bellamy also experienced horror and misgivings about it. He experienced a kind of like moral horror at the thing that he was doing, even though he believed he was right to be doing it. In a way that other people did not, you know, like Hannah did not. Yeah. Pike did not. Yeah. So I think that maybe like if there is a core of something that sets apart those who do terrible things, but are redeemable for it from the people who do terrible things and are not, it's something about that ability to sort of detach from the necessity and see the human cost of it. 
and eventually reckon with it. I mean, I think like, like you're right that definitely what was happening was Clark watching that, Clark facing it was Clark having to reckon with that in a way that she's been running from, right. you know, like the, the horror that she caused and the death that she caused. I think that's totally right. Like the only way she can atone for it, the only way you can atone for it is to look at it, to look honestly at what you did and what it meant and why it was wrong and, and why you did it and then try to fix it. And so I think like this episode was Clark doing that, was Clark seeing that yeah. and then sort of like atoning very symbolically through killing Emerson with the chip. So I think it's really important. And I think you're right. Like those, those lines about mad people, your people, you hurt my people. So now I got hurt your people. Like that's totally getting taken apart. So let's talk about Lincoln and the funeral pyre at the end too, because like I said, as soon as they did the whole, like the flame is atonement. I was like, okay, flame equals atonement. Um, <laughs> like reading texts. 201 kids <laughs> when they tell you something is a symbol it's a symbol and then look for every other possible version of that symbol or thing that could be related to that symbol and that is also a symbol so when we got a giant fire at the end yeah i was like oh look flames <laughs> so yeah so i think i was paying attention to that when we got to the end again like there's a really really important moment if you look at the way that was shot and how different characters reacted to that. You yeah. know, so I think that final scene, that was about Octavia, but I think that was symbolically Bellamy's atonement for Lincoln. Yeah. First, first big step towards Bellamy's atonement for the Grounder Massacre, which I think we're going to get more of maybe next episode, certainly by the end of the season. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, he carries out the body in order for them to have the funeral for Lincoln. Yeah. He carries that burden. Like, again, yeah. think about it symbolically. He's carrying the burden of, of Lincoln's death, literally. And when the funeral pyre is going on, you are totally right to point out, they all say, you gone's place, stay Odon. And then there's a pause. You know, Bellamy doesn't say it. And then we get to see him say it by himself. Yeah. Set apart. And like you said, like I hadn't thought about it, but you're right. That's the first time he ever said, he ever spoke. Trigger slang. Yeah. Which I, I think you're totally right. That's huge. So, so atonement step number one is taking that step into embracing grounder culture and recognizing that his hatred of it and his fear of it and his rejection of that side of Lincoln was like at the heart of the problem of what he did wrong. And then also, if you look at the way that that's shot, when he says that, we see Bellamy through the flames. Yeah. Every single frame of Bellamy in that scene yeah. is either shot up from across the fire, so the flame is between Bellamy and the camera, and he's always framed with Clark, or even when the fire isn't between the camera and Bellamy, when Octavia leaves and Bellamy turns to leave, every frame that we see Bellamy in, the fire is in. Yeah. So we are very, very clearly seen, more so than any other character, really. I think we're really supposed to see Flame and Bellamy put together. Yeah. And I really think that's because Flame is symbolic of atonement. And this is, this is Bellamy's symbolic atonement for Lincoln. And also his wordless attempted atonement to Octavia by yeah. carrying out the body of Lincoln, by arranging this funeral, by sort of saying the words and being there for her. Well, because they talked about 
at the beginning of the last episode when he stops her from going back to Arcadia and she says grounders burn their dead and, he, and he's like no you can't go it's not safe and so yeah he's like yeah yeah I know what are you really gonna do he wants to stop her so I think that him knowing that this is something that's really important to her and I loved there was so much going on in the little moments of Blake's sibling eye contact both when yeah. I, mean, I mean really throughout the whole episode but particularly I noticed when he brings out Lincoln's body or the body of that much smaller than Ricky Whittle <laughs> corpse body double <laughs> when he when he brings out Lincoln's body and then also again at the fire that there was like we are still so far from them being reconciled but Octavia being back on the team like Octavia being able to sort of at least share space with him for a finite period of time before she has to storm off because she can't be around people is progress yeah. you know yeah, for Octavia so and the way that you know she turns to look at him after she's that like wrenching scene where like she starts crying yeah. over Lincoln's body, which like God, like Marie just oh God, she was the MVP oh. of this episode. I thought, oh yeah. God, it was awful. But she turns around and looks at him, and I mean, it was like so sad. Like his face was so sad. But I think, yeah. I think she looks at him, and it isn't accusatory anymore. You know? Yeah, and it's it, not it's... a truce quite, but it's something getting there. Yeah, I felt like it had a whiff of thank you about it like it yeah, almost felt yeah. a little bit like it didn't make up for it but she was acknowledging that he did something that he didn't have to do because he knew that she needed it and he cared when i saw that like giant ass funeral pyre i was like bellamy blake hauled every single one of those goddamn logs himself <laughs> like, yeah, i bet he didn't let anyone else help him like that is him physically atoning classic bellamy <laughs> classic hashtag bellamy. that's so bellamy i will go fella for it yes literally i will take my axe and i will chop down a hundred trees if yeah. that's what it takes to show my sister that i am sorry it's like fucking oh. hanging out for like two weeks waiting for yeah it's like yeah. dude we gotta go and he's like wait, wait i'm haven't, I haven't yeah. finished chopping down all the trees yeah. for the funeral pyre. Yet. Guys, it has to be a perfect square. We have to. We can't have them shifting around. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, the, and the other thing that I really loved about that moment was it was so heartbreaking. Well, I mean, just everything about the way the Sinclair storyline went down, even oh, though even though I knew Sinclair is going to die in this episode because there can't be an adult on the kid squad, and I knew it was happening, yeah, yeah. and it was still so terrible because he died protecting Raven, and the, his last words were, get yeah. back in the rover, like, trying to keep her safe, and then he died thinking she was going to die, and everything was awful, and I was like, this is garbage. But what I found oh. both beautiful and devastating about that funeral scene was a, I loved that they gave Raven the dignity of like the Raven and Octavia were sort of belonged to them jointly, which I thought gave Sinclair a lot of respect, you know, like them yes, lying there side yes. by side. But then also when you think about how much effort, how many people went through to get those three men out of Arcadia and three days later, two of the three of them are dead. You know, when you think about yeah. all the work that went into oh. the jailbreak, trying to free Kane and Lincoln and Sinclair, and now Lincoln and Sinclair are both dead, and it just felt so tragic. And I kept thinking about Miller and everybody who worked so hard to free them yeah. and how close they thought that they were to everybody getting out, you know, and then seeing Kane getting tortured next week, and he's like now a prisoner yeah. again. It felt particularly poignant and 
you know, sort of ironic in a really upsetting way that they did die in Arcadia. Sinclair made it out and then two days later came back. They didn't get away. And so I thought it was really lovely and haunting that they got that funeral together with the beautiful funeral music and, and it was, you know, so well shot. So I, I liked that Sinclair's had so many great moments all season long where I was just like, I'm sure you're going to die because you're getting such good material. Right, you know, right. Yeah. It's like, like they're, <laughs> they're building you up to break us down when they murder you. But I liked the emotional weight that it gave Raven to sort of also be concelebrating that funeral side by yeah. side with Octavia to sort of let her kind of have that moment. But also, is sort of yet another reminder that all of their hopes now are on Kane. He's the only yeah. one who got away. He's the only yeah. person who could lead a new Arcadia, whatever that sort of looks like. And all the work that they did to get those people out, and he's the only person who made it. And so now it's like, for that not to all be futile, it's now all on Kane. But the funeral scene I thought was just beautiful. And I feel like it, I feel like the progress back to a relationship between the Blakes feels like it's moving at a really good organic pace. It's like they're making a little bit of progress each episode, but it still feels rooted in who they really are and not pushing it too fast or too hard. Like Octavia is still, she's at where she's at, but that they are like, they're on the team together. I'm, I'm excited for the Blake sibling road trip in the next episode. (laughs) The groupings are interesting because Clark and Bellamy and Octavia and Jasper, like those are four characters that all have like a lot of, baggage to work out among them so mm-hmm. i think that that's like a really good sort of like group to have stuck together yeah um <laughs> well and you you predicted this minus jasper but this was the exact combination weeks ago when you were saying like wouldn't it be amazing if the road trip group to go find luna is like octavia and bellamy and clark who are all mad at each other in different combinations and have yeah. like all of this like baggage <laughs> to work through but they're like stuck on like like stuck on a together and then add Jasper and it's like this is literally exactly what Aaron predicted so I feel like I think we're going to get some good talking these things out as bummed as I was to have the adventure squad broken back up again I do feel like you know we're coming to the end of this season it is clearly a two-pronged defensive approach to taking out Allie which involves you know Raven said it they have to figure out how to hack into Allie through the mainframe, and they also have to find Allie to a host. They have to be on two teams, so that makes sense. I think you're right. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the Raven and Monty part of it plays out, and to what degree Monty is vulnerable to the temptation of wanting to see if there's a way for him to find his mom again. And if that ends up being something that creates complications between him and Raven, or makes him more motivated to, you know, help figure this out. And then just more devastated at the end when he realizes that he actually can't get his mom back. I think it's really interesting too to go back to the flame as atonement thing that, you know, that Octavia is the one who runs away, you know, like she kind of can't face it. I think that's a piece of her really struggling with her grief and being unable to, like you said, like she, she sort of copes with it through anger, through kind of just like fighting with it. And, and then fighting with Bellamy or like yeah. fighting with whoever he thinks is responsible. And it's not like the same as, it's not like vengeance in the same way that like Emerson is getting vengeance, but it's also that kind of just not being able to sort of like cope with the idea that blame isn't going to like solve right. anything. And so 
Yeah, so I'm sort of interested to see where that goes too. And it's, you know, especially in terms of like the way it plays out between the Blake siblings as, you know, Bellamy kind of moves through this, this atonement, how she reacts to that, you know? Yeah. And I sort of think that we're now moving to a place where like Octavia's reaction to Bellamy's atonement is not the measuring stick for it. You know, like how Octavia reacts is how Octavia reacts. She is no longer, you know, this like sort of the audience stand in for that. I think Clark is the audience stand in, especially now that she's sort of clear of her about whether crap. Right. Well, and that's, I was thinking about that too with this episode. We're shifting away from Octavia as Vox Populi character. Her moral barometer is what we, the audience, are supposed to take as right and wrong. And so it bothers me much less when she is, you know, hostile to or dismissive of or, or not you know, empathetic towards Bellamy because she's once again being treated as like, she is a character who has been through stuff and has her own perspective. We've moved out of this sort of muddy patch where it was genuinely unclear whether we were meant to believe that she was correct in the narrative's opinion about Bellamy and the things Bellamy had done. And this sort of increasingly implausible retcon that everything he's ever done in the whole entire world was about her. So I think shifting out of that into that we're just watching people who each kind of come with their own baggage attached, interacting in ways that are occasionally fraught and complicated it's like well that i'm fine with that's what this whole show is because it no longer feels like the narrative inexplicably villainizing bellamy at the expense of everybody else and i think the change is clark coming back into the narrative i think that clark Clark being together solves everything i'm just saying i have loved the last couple of episodes so much because i feel like the even though i don't like horror movies and this one was really scary But this one and the last one, you know, sort of getting the team back together episodes. I think the show loses something when Clark and Bellamy are not each other's primary scene partners. Partly that's because then in the absence of each other, their primary scene partner becomes somebody else. And I think that there are limits to how open they can be with people who aren't each other. So we get this really closed off, introverted, keeping all of her thought processes inside version of Clark. And we get this, you know, don't ask questions. I'm doing this for your own good. Leave me alone. Not explaining anything. Bellamy as a totally realistic factor of like, who's in the room for you to talk to. And if it's nobody, you're not going to say anything. And this is not a Shakespeare play full of soliloquies. So we're not going to get you exposing to the audience, your sort of inner thought processes. But when they're with each other, the show doesn't pretend like Bellamy has never done anything bad. When Clark is the person we see it filtered through And vice versa. I I think on the contrary, they see each other much more clearly. But I think the difference is that compassion and that lack of judgment. It was such a classic Belarc moment when they realize that Emerson has all of their friends and Clark says, you know, this is my fault. I should have killed him when I had a chance at Polis. And she kind of tells Bellamy the story. And you can see instantly, and they don't even have to say it out loud, that he's doing the thing where it's like, okay, you're telling me something that you're afraid makes you a terrible person. And if you told this to somebody else, they probably would say to you, what were you thinking? You should have just stabbed him in the face, you know? (laughs) And, And their thing with each other is always like, you had your reasons. You always have your reasons. Like, yeah, I know you. I, I know why you do the things that you do. And if you didn't kill Emerson in Polis when you had a chance to kill him, you don't have to explain that to me. 
I believe you that in that moment, you believe that was the right choice. And so all we have to do now is figure out what are we going to do now? Exactly. Yeah. Like she says that and and he sees her and he, you know, and he can kind of almost like, like silently affirm, like, okay, I accept that that is the choice that you made. And like right now we're in the consequences. What are we going to do to make this okay? You know, like not like, how could you? You did what? Yeah. None of that. Yeah. Not like, well, you have to fix it, but like, okay, all right, I accept that. I accept you. Or how, how are we going to fix the situation? Yeah, because the very next thing that he does is flat out refuse to let her go in there by herself. So, yeah, and then like speaking of like things that no one could ever say, like that moment when Clark decides she's going to sacrifice herself, which is like, I am working to can just not dissolve into squee right now, but um, maybe like the little jaw clench of Bellamy's and uh, her plant and uh, see him yeah. like no um, <laughs> but um you know but like when she when she sort of turns around and says like okay like you know like this is what I'm gonna do take this flame promise me and she's trying to keep it together right yeah. about to crack she's trying to be Polis Clark for a right. moment where right. she's kind of like here's my plan it's all okay and like the magic thing about Bellamy and Clark together is that Bellamy fucking calls her on her bullshit. You know, like she's having this moment mm-hmm. of like, the only way is for me to martyr myself. And Bellamy's like, no, that is wrong. We're not doing that plan. That's yeah. a stupid plan. Yeah. We're going to do my stupid plan. I like when he, when he, when, he, when she's, she's don't die. <laughs> and I love it when he, when she's like, okay, we're going to do this and this and this. And he's like, all right, are you done? Like, <laughs> yeah, like exactly. I love that. Yeah. I love that little moment. Yeah. Because, because I do, yeah. I think that. When she's like, she's trying to hand him the chip. She's just like, take yeah. promise me. Yeah. And she can't meet his eyes. You know, yeah. she's telling him the plan, but she's trying to sort of convince him that she's going to do this. And it's going to be okay. She can't look at him. Yeah. And then he says no. And that sort of like the facade sort of like breaks. She's like startled and she looks up into his eyes, but it sort of breaks. And then again, when she's saying like, no, you have to do this. And he says, are you through? Like, again, she's kind of like, she won't look at him. She won't, yeah. you know, she's trying to like sort of set him out. And he refuses to let her shut him out. You know, he forces her to look up in, in his face and, mm-hmm. you know, and like confront him like, okay, well, what's your plan? And then he makes her smile. Like she tries to do the Clark facade for him. Just like sometimes he'll try to do the Bellamy facade for her. Although yeah. like he does it, he puts up the walls less for her, but like she'll yeah. try to do the Clark facade for him. And he just, he just refuses. Yeah. Like, like, he's just like, no, I see what you're doing. I see, you know, what you're trying yeah. to do. And we are not going to do that. You know, like, I refuse to play this game with you. I refuse to play along mm-hmm. um, with who you're trying to pretend to be, you know? Yeah. And I just like, it's just like so beautiful, you know? And, and him also saying to her, I don't know what happened with you and Emerson and Polis, but I know that, that you going in yourself, there and getting yeah. yourself killed is a stupid like I love that he he says like he basically says to her, I don't know what happened and I don't care. It doesn't right. matter. This well, isn't about recrimination. This isn't about like second guessing you. This is about you yeah. and what's happening right now and what do we do to give everyone a chance to stay alive, yeah. including you. What's interesting is in Polis, in whatever episode it is, I think it's for where they have the like everyone bows to one head up where she comes out in her yeah. fancy gold dress and then she kneels to Lexa and then everyone kneels to her and Lexa like introduces her to the room as legendary one head mountain slayer and I think about the mountain yeah. slayer thing a lot because it's yeah. like it's part of the mask of one head that she had to wear in Polis because she had to be like the badass like you know vengeance goddess 
contained within that costume that she had to wear, that role that she had to put on as one head is a degree of pride about those Mount Weather deaths, wearing that as a totem that is contained in that name and in the sort of reverence that grounder culture has for that role. And like the idea that Lexa would call her mountain slayer in this sort of proclamatory like it's an honorific. Yeah, it's a title yeah. of honor that's given to one Hedda that she is the one who slayed the mountain. And it makes perfect logical sense from a grounder perspective because this is the person who slaughtered their greatest enemy, you know, and the number of people right. who lost loved ones to the mountain men, like they view that with reverence. And I think what that obfuscates in some ways, and one of the things that makes Clark the most not herself when she's in that world is that. Clark isn't proud of that. And Clark doesn't think that's an honor. She doesn't think it's heroic. There's something that I find, I don't quite know how to put it into words, but there's something in the way that now that she and Bellamy are sort of back on the same team again, and with Emerson sort of entering back into the story, I guess the way that she and Bellamy sort of like, whatever the thing is in the air sort of between them about Mount Weather, about what happened, about Emerson, about the choice that she made, you know, not to kill him. His understanding of the fact that this is still a thing that's so tremendously painful for her. Like, she's not Juan Hedda in this episode. She's deliberately not. She's so vulnerable in the face of watching her friends die the way that she killed those people. She's still Clark. I mean, she's still like, crafty and badass and finds a way out of it she's not any less tough but she's a different clark she's the real messy complicated clark which is so different from juan hedda clark is resilient whereas juan hedda is rigid yes yes thinking about it it's like sort of strength as as resilience rather than rigidity i think you're right i think like what clark in some ways was trying to put on a version of with her sort of like, well, I will sacrifice myself. It's like that, the one had armor, you know? Right. Like, and that's what Bellamy sort of strips away. And also like, I was, as you're talking, I was thinking about all of the ways that this really kind of runs through this whole episode. And I think it's like, it really does because like you think about, okay, so when she sort of confesses to Bellamy that it was her choice that resulted in Emerson being there. Right. The fact that he responds with acceptance and problem solving like he's like okay that is the thing that you did how do we fix this right i think you could sort of read that on a symbolic level as being like a model of how we are now supposed to respond to when people do things that hurt us not Mm -hmm. with recrimination or revenge but with okay how do we fix it you know so i think that might be one sort of one level but i think you're totally right like the d1 heading of clark sort of culminating in this episode i think you're completely right because like another thing like i hadn't thought about this before the other thing that emerson represents is the mount weather genocide and everything else that comes with it including one heda like one heda stands Hmm. for the mount weather genocide and so Emerson and Juan Hedda are the two sides to that coin. Dep- yeah. Depending on whose people you're with, right? Like yeah. Juan Hedda symbolizes taking pride in that triumph. And Emerson symbolizes the sort of like revenge and the hatred and the anger of the people who were killed. 
And you're right to point out that like both of those are being demolished simultaneously. Yeah. As we see Clark, you know, broken and grief stricken and facing the horror of what she had done on sort of like multiple levels and then overcoming, you know, like sort of like facing up to it and then ending it. Like she yeah. ends it. Emerson, the last mountain man is dead. That is dead. And I think that means that also means you're right. That means Juan Hedda is gone. Yeah. And then, you know, and I was thinking about it when you're talking about it too like all the different ways that they signal that in tiny little ways like Clark's hair is mm-hmm. finally losing the grounder styling it's had ever since they dressed her up as Juan Hedda yeah like she her hair has slowly been returning to Clark hair instead of Juan Hedda hair yeah and I think maybe that's not a coincidence here yeah um so Clark looks like Clark again and not like Juan Hedda I mean, she's got like a few little things because she's been yeah. changed, you know, yeah. but like it's the most Clark-like. And then also, I hadn't even thought about this, but blood must have blood doesn't work on the flame. She tries that as the key. She says blood must have blood. She yes. says strangers down. I and had that, so many that thoughts about that. Yeah. The ultimate yeah. discrediting of blood must have blood, like forever that I don't know what is. It was really interesting to me because I, first of all, it, we know that that isn't a secret password because we've heard both Becca and also Titus use it. But yet when everyone is sort of brainstorming, yeah. like, okay, what's the thing that Lexa always said? And it's like, all together now, audience, too strange, you sound like we all know what it is, you know, and, and so the fact that it isn't yeah. that is a reminder that whatever the grounders made of the culture that they created, it has evolved away from what Becca brought them. It has gone in yeah. some ways yeah. in a different direction. Like even Allie too, who is closer to what Becca wanted, isn't fully Becca, like Becca's in there, you know, like Becca from had a first commander, but that they've created and adapted their own cultural practices. So like, cause my theory about blood must have blood is that it's something that I think all these things began really simply and then evolved into these big spiritual things. So the way like they call it the leader, the commander, because commander is what it said on Becca's jacket and the patch is with the holy relics. I have the theory, which we just, we talked about earlier today. I think Promheta is her last name. I think Becca Promheta is the scientist's name and that evolved into a title that evolved into Hedda meaning commander. Like I think that some of those things are you know, are simple and straightforward. But I think the blood must have blood could be a derivative of the thing that she told the first people that she found on the ground about how their red blood needed her synthetic black blood so that they could survive. Oh, and it became... Wow, that would be really interesting. Blood must have blood, like your blood needs this blood so that you can survive. And then mythology and cultural practices sort of sprang up around it, but that wasn't what it meant. And I suspect that there are lots of bits and pieces of grounder culture that are things that came from Becca that have evolved past their original meaning the same way the commander patch did. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of them. So it feels to me like the fact that blood must have blood is both a, the most recognizable thing that any grounder, particularly Lexa, would ever, ever, ever say, and that that isn't the secret AI password, is a reminder that Becca set the password, that the grounders yeah. didn't exist then. This is that they were in Becca's mind, and that if the grounders' culture has evolved into things that are not what Becca would have wanted... That's human beings making their own sets of choices. So the fact that it's seek higher things, that it's about her, like that's the motto of her company. And in Latin, because Becca was a delightful nerd, which I just love. But (laughs) so it felt to me like you said, like, that's a really significant moment 
that blood must have blood and juice drain, juice down are rejected as the thing that controls the flame, both on an allegorical level, because the flame is about atonement and that is violently contrary to those things, but also because the flame was Becca's atonement and Becca would never say that. Like Becca would never say blood must have blood in the way that the grounders currently use it. And so if those are words they inherited from her, they must have meant something different when Becca said them. Yes, yes. I think you're totally right. You're totally right. Yeah. So just like piling up signals that we're supposed to be turning away from all that stuff and turning towards something more like atonement, acceptance, forgiveness, you know, like how do we build a world from what exists right now rather than clinging to the past and sort of operating based on that. What's the most, I think, (laughs) foreboding about that interpretation is that I feel like we're almost certainly being set up for a finale in which a massively significant percentage of both populations die in the city of light. Either they can't get yeah, everybody out. I've been having some really interesting. Or else it makes them all commit mass suicide. Well, that's what I was thinking. I've been thinking a lot about Kilgrave and Jessica Jones since we reached the place in this story where you know Allie can now basically totally circumvent free will and she can make you do terrible things to yourself. She can make you do terrible things to the people that you care about. And we know from having seen Raven get unchipped that you don't lose any of those memories. And so I think a lot about the particularly harrowing ways that Jessica Jones handled some of that mind control kind of stuff. And the finale of, of that show, I guess, spoilers if you haven't watched Jessica Jones, is a crowd of people holding weapons on themselves and each other and Jessica having to sort of decide whether to go after the bad guy or try to save all of these people, you know, and it's sort of a mass suicide or mass murder sort of situation where Allie can make people turn on each other feels in line with sort of some of the things that we've heard about how dark and sad and fucked up the tone of that particular finale is, but also feels like the organic way forward to the smashing of the boundaries between like that there no longer is any my people, your people, that there's whoever's left, you know, in the wreckage to pick up the pieces and start over. And that season four, which we know from the things that they've said, you know, it's going to be sort of a smaller, I think more inwardly focused kind of storytelling instead of sort of the the Game of Thrones redux that a lot of the sort of big um, sprawling storylines in this season have been. I think that a a season four that's about a mixed group of delinquents and Sky Crew adults and grounders trying to build something new that has never existed before in the wreckage of all of their civilizations having fallen apart, I think could be really interesting and a good way to sort of explore in a way that neither group really has yet, building something from scratch. And sort of cobbled together from the wreckage of the cataclysm, you know, like building something that is truly new and not just like pieces of the old. Yeah, like it's like we talked about last time, like about, you know, Pike and Antari being sort of the representatives of the worst of the civilizations that they came from, holding the most sort of aggressively to the rigid old ways and, and the narrative pretty clearly contrasting them with Kane on one side and Lexa on the other, who are of that world and have sort of evolved out of it and are trying to seek a different way. And so I think that it, it seems very clearly like the direction that the narrative is going is towards the building of something that takes maybe the best aspects of both, but also is, I think, based on the reality of the world that they really 
live in right now. So it feels like a bunch of people are going to have to die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for no, that, like a bunch of people are going to have to die. Unfortunately, um, I think that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think like broad strokes, the end of the season, you know, it's going to be like that. And then like people sort of having to turn away to sort of like accept grief as a part of love. Also sort of learn to tor- turn towards life rather than focusing on losses and death in the past. One thing I noticed in the in the promo for next week was we have a flashback to Pike giving some sort of lecture to what it looks like there are the delinquents about, you know, like surviving. Yeah, Octavia's there. So my guess is yeah. that what happened is that before they sent everybody to the ground, everybody, I guess besides Clark, everybody who wasn't in like solitary confinement got like Earth Skills 101 from Pike yeah. about like basic ground survival. One thing that struck me when I went back and watched it again this afternoon is Pike says, the key is never stop fighting. You know, it's mm-hmm. like another one of those times when somebody says the key is yeah. dot, dot, dot. There are very, very obvious ways where that, that never stop fighting sort of idea has got totally warped by Pike, yeah. like, you know, when he was on the ground. But I think maybe like that the key is never stop fighting, like at its heart might be true. And it might turn out to be that like, you know, like what's the thing that keeps you fighting? It's love, yeah. right? It's fighting for the people you love who are alive. Yeah. Like, that's what keeps everyone going. Like, in this episode, you know, like, the thing that keeps Clark going is she never stops fighting for the people that she loves. Here's my question for you. We have two episodes left before the two-part finale. So I am curious as to what's going to happen in the finale. Because I sort of feel like the next two are going to be about, like, the, the end of 14 is basically going to be sort of the realization that there is no Luna. Luna's not an option. They're going to have to figure out some other way and whatever it is the thing that Raven and Monty discover to figure out how to get the chip into Clark. I think that like that's the next two episodes are going to basically like move all the pieces into place and then the finale is going to be Clark in the City of Light. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think if I remember correctly, I think that Clark in the City of Light is 15. I think I remember hearing that that Lexa is in 15. So I wouldn't be surprised if like 15 is the battle, however that battle plays out, you know, against Evil Alley. And then 16 is going to be more about getting the people who are in there out before they die or whatever. Or, like, you know, getting Clark back out or something like that. Yeah, so I think, like, 15 is going to be in the City of Light and that whole thing. 16 is going to be about getting the people out of the City of Light and however that surely massive tragedy is going to play out. If Abby winds up in City of Light till the end, I I feel like 16 is going to be when the kind of, like, rescue for her happens. Yeah. It might be that Clark comes out at the end of 15. Like, she gets her closure in City of Light. She does what she needs to do. She's brought out by whatever she's brought out by, which at this point I feel like is going to be Bellamy. There's no possible way that it's not going to be Bellamy who gets her out of the City of Light. Yeah. And then 16 might be Clark saving Abby or helping to save Abby. Yeah. And then whoever else is in there who doesn't die. So that's interesting that... So I didn't know that Lexa was in 15 and not 16 because I was thinking of it as happening, like, potentially in reverse, that between Monty and Raven and sort of whoever is on Team Science, that they begin to find a way to start freeing people from the City of Light, 
And that the big climactic final thing that happens is Clark getting stuck in there and everyone having to now try to help save her and having to shut down the whole thing from the inside. But that potentially the process to like help free people could happen. Yeah, I think it could go that way too. I think it yeah. actually could go either way. I yeah. can see it going either way. I, the, the reason that I said that is because I remember reading somewhere that Lexa was in 15. Yeah. If that is true, then I think it's more likely to play out the way that I said. But yeah. that could be wrong. Partly because I feel like all we know know about what happens to Clark in the City of Light is that one tiny slice of it involves them in downtown Vancouver and Lex is there and Jasper's there and that's all we know. And so it could be that Clark is sort of through the looking glass, you know, in, in both of yeah. them. And they you just know, like shot it all at once, which would make sense because that would be cheaper. So yeah. that could totally be as well. Yeah. yeah. Part of it is I am I am certainly colored here by my desire to have Abby on the Save Clark team, but also that it feels in some way narratively like the way to raise the finale stakes in some ways is to make them smaller. Like if season one was about Clark saving all of her people from the Grounder War, and then in season two, it's, you know, Clark saving all of her people from Mount Weather. I wonder if the finale of this is everyone teaming up to save Clark. Like you're heightening the emotional stakes by making them much more intimate. The emotional crescendo, like the last big thing that happens being Clark choosing reality over illusion feels in some ways like an emotionally higher stakes moment than Clark saving thousands of people. I don't know. So see that happening because like, because like thinking about how the next episodes are going to play out. So I think kind of gut feeling about next episode is that Clark and Bellamy and Jasper and Octavia, that group are probably not going to progress plot wise a lot. I think that group is still going to be working through character stuff more than plot stuff. I mean, what do we know about where they're going to be? They're going to be on the coast and they're going to be in Polis, right? So I have a feeling that like the coast stuff is definitely all going to be like character working through their shit stuff. Yeah. And then it may Um, end with them realizing like they arrive at Luna's village and it's gone or she's dead or whatever. But I think like that. And then they wind up going back to Polis and that's kind of how they, they wind up in the plot again. Yeah. So for those characters, they're going to be like rejoining the main plot later, but that's not their main, that's not the thing that's going to be moving them. Yeah. So I think the main plot movement is going to happen with Kane and Abby and Pike and then like maybe Murphy and Antari and Ellie. Like that's going to be the thing that moves along. And I think that's going to involve them finding out more information about um, Nightbloods and Alley 2 and, yeah, and sort of like shaping what their plan is going to be and also revealing to us what the plan is probably. Like, yeah. I'm feeling we'll find out more about like whatever the big end game is. What I'm interested in and kind of hopeful about in the Polis storyline is that once again, we have Murphy being a person that has a ton of information in a position yeah. to provide that information to other people because he's been thrown in jail. It increases the odds of him bumping into Kane when they're both in grounder prison and, yeah. and both of them having different sets of information about what's happening that they could then pool. Of course, Kane doesn't have any information. Like he left Arcadia before he was really aware apparently of the alley stuff very much. So yeah. Well, they- he, if we can assume that he knows everything that Abby knew before he left and assume that those things happened in off screen conversations. Which is a big if because we aren't shown any of that. But Murphy doesn't know that Jaha was at Arcadia and Murphy doesn't know that the chips make you forget. 
Yeah, so it is interesting. There's kind of like weird overlaps of information. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, you're right that that's all going to move forward and people, different people discovering different things and that sort of shaping that plan. And then, but like, I think what that probably means overall is that like the Luna group are mostly going to be doing character stuff. They're going to get back to Polos and rejoin the plot at some point. That's all going to build up to them finding out that Luna is not an option for whatever reason. Which means that 14 is going to be probably them finding that out and then having to go back and figure out how to solve that problem while outfoxing Allie. Which does tend to sort of seem like they might need part of 15 to get Clark in. Yeah. Which kind of pushes back all that. Well, because because 14 is the one with the nautical title. 14 is Red Sky yes. at Morning. And so the Luna thing can't be resolved in the next episode. No, the, it, has to be, it has to be 14. It has to be 14. What we could see in the next two episodes is Monty and Raven making some significant degree of progress in how to hack into Allie in some other way. One of the factors to kind of keep an eye out for is who's left in Polis that isn't chipped. That could potentially, under some circumstances, be rallied into a posse that Allie can't control. And it's Murphy and Kane and Pike and Indra. Yeah. Who oh, is, yeah. Who is in, Indra. And she's in the trailer doing something with, like, either taking a knife out of a hole in the wall or digging a hole in a stone wall with a yeah, knife or yeah, something. Right. So my money is on Indra being involved in some kind of a cane jailbreak and having to grudgingly be convinced to also retrieve Pike. <laughs> oh, man, that would be amazing. Yeah. So oh, because this fits that into... because that would be so great. Because this fits right into my scheme that I was really wanting where the rise of Jaha and Ali forces people to sort of band together in unexpected, slightly tense, annoyed ways because they're all on the same team. And it goes along with that thing we were talking about where they're sort of demolishing the idea of my people, your people. They're yeah. Sort of like taking people who would, who would be enemies because of their people are their enemies and forcing them to sort of reckon with the fact that we're all just people trying to survive. Exactly. Well, and, and then I feel like it's like, I feel like every podcast I say that I'm not a Pike apologist and then I go on to say something that basically is code for like, I love Pike, but, we, but I, but I feel it's like, I just, I don't, I feel like it's just, I should just embrace it. But my, we just, we should have a designated segment. Yes. My, my, Pike yeah, Claire, Claire's defensive Pike segment. Yeah. Yes. But so, so today's defensive Pike is that I do feel, I, I, <laughs> I feel like Pike's hatred of the grounders is so situational and is presented to us as being largely sort of a xenophobia that's born of defensiveness, that they were attacked first and that it created this mentality in him of like, okay, so what I got to do to stay alive is kill all of you people. But I also think it doesn't come from a deep seated sort of like, moral hatred kind of place that like like I feel like once Pike gets to a place where he realizes that the bigger threat is Jaha you know I think it could be interesting to sort of watch those walls come down and I I I should always hope that the resolution of his story was going to have to be him working side by side in concert with one of the grounder characters that we know and love and realizing how badly he sort of misread the whole situation. And initially I was hoping for Lincoln and that all kind of went sideways. But I think that him, yeah. you know, him and Indra on a team together, like if Indra helps save his life, I think similar to how it played out with Emerson, you know, I think if, if Pike's arc was 
over or was supposed to end in, you know, him being murdered by grounders as penance for the things that he did. We would have seen that already. You know, yeah. So I think yeah. I think the fact that he's alive and he's being slowly tortured to death. We're showing him paying for his mistakes. You know, like right. we're being shown his compulsory atonement. But because he isn't being like shot in the head, it dramatically yeah. increases the chances that he's going to somehow end up getting out of this and yeah. being temporary allies with Kane and Indra and potentially also Murphy, which would be just hilarious. But. Um, <laughs> You know, it just, it seems like the fact that we're being shown for the first time in that little flashback, Murphy and Pike interacting, which they haven't yet, you know, but Murphy's in that classroom. So it feels like, you know, potentially is that some kind of, you know, is that important? But, um, but yeah, so I feel like the, I think the fact that we now have four significant characters in Polis left, only four, who are, who are not chipped and all of whom have different amounts of information about what's actually happening, but all of whom are people who are stubborn and resistant, you know, and have strong wills. And, you know, if they're the sort of the squad on the outside, I don't know how they're going to be sort of involved in any way in the kind of final scheme, but I like the idea Mm -hmm. that there's like a team on the inside and then team science trying to figure out, you know, how they're going to take out the chip and then Clark inside the city of light, I think could be a really, really big, interesting dynamic story. Yeah, Yeah. no, I agree. I agree. I like that. So we'll see. All right. So let's wrap it up. Thanks to everybody again for listening. And we'll see you all back next week for episode 313, Join or Die. Yeah. (laughs) Foreboding as hell. So yeah, so please join us while I have, I'm sure what will be just an insane amount of flailing over my wrecked cabbie feels. But, but I had. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Yeah. Um, So it's going to be very exciting. So uh, thanks for everyone for listening, and we will see you back here next week. Bye.